We come to the time in our corporate worship gathering where we look to God's Word together. I invite you to take out your copy of God's Word. And as we prepare to study the Lord and study His Word, let's ask for His help this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth of your Scripture that you have given to us. We thank you that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that we men and women of God may be equipped for every good work. So we ask that you do that this morning, that you equip us for every good work. We pray that you would open up our minds to understand wonderful things from your law this morning. May you increase our understanding of who you are, and may you lift our hearts and worship to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Psalm 147 verse 1 states, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and praise is becoming. If you've ever wondered, why do we praise God? Why do we sing praises to God? Why do we either verbally or mentally ascribe thoughts to Him in praise? Well, Psalm 147, verse 1, gives us two reasons at least to praise God. Number one, it says that we praise Him For it is pleasant. It is pleasant to praise God. It's delightful. It produces happiness and joy to worship our God. Those whom love God find singing praises to Him as a joyful task. So it is pleasant. And secondly, it is becoming, the text says. For it is pleasant and praise is becoming. Something similar is said in Psalm 33, verse 1. It says, Praise is becoming to the upright. In other words, it is fitting to praise God. It accords with what is right. It it suits us. It's fitting. God, of course, is worthy of all praise. Everything about him demands our praise. And so it's only natural for mankind to praise God. And for really, for all things to praise God. when When we set our hearts and minds... To praise God, we're forcing our intellect to praise God as he truly is. We are giving intentional thought to God's character and his attributes, and we are affirming in our hearts what is ultimately true. God's character is unchanging, it's fixed, it's it's immutable, we might say. But the more we know of his ageless character, the more meaningful our praises become, the more accurate they become. So the knowledge of God, the more we understand God's, it informs and elevates our praises to God. The knowledge of God, it really instructs then and informs how we are to praise and what we are to praise God for. We can only praise God so far as we know him and understand him rightly. Psalm 7, 17 states, I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness. So as we understand God's righteousness and his character, we can praise him accordingly. Psalm 63, verse 3 similarly states, Because of your, li- your loving kindness, or because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will then praise you. So only to the degree that we know the living God, that we understand him, can then we praise him rightly. Therefore, the Bible, as God's own self-disclosure of himself to us, becomes the informant of all of our praises. 
The more we know of God, and as he has revealed himself in his word, the more we know and understand, the more we are able to praise him rightly. The more we are equipped to praise him, we might say. This is a truth that I've heard John MacArthur reference over and over again in his preaching ministry. And even in seminary, I remember John MacArthur talking about this to a, to a room full of aspiring pastors. I distinctly remember him saying things like, in our preaching, the deeper we go into the text of Scripture, the more our people are elevated in worship. Meaning that the more we reveal God to our people through the Scriptures, the more they are enabled to praise Him. From a sermon on John chapter 4, on verse 24, in the truth of worshiping in spirit and in truth, MacArthur said this, He said, your praise can only go as high as your understanding goes deep. People who have a superficial knowledge of God have only a superficial capacity to praise God. The height of your praise is directly proportionate to the depth of your understanding. When you understand the deep things of God, when you understand the truths of his glorious nature and work, your praise is elevated based upon that knowledge. You see, it's directly proportionate. He writes, so if you want to worship the Lord in a greater way, it doesn't mean turn up the band. It doesn't mean turn up the music. If you want to worship the Lord in a greater way, enrich your understanding of him from his glorious word. MacArthur then adds, the true worship leader in the church is the person who teaches the scriptures because that's where worship is born. Worship is stimulated not by music, but by understanding, by the reading of scripture and the preaching of scripture, end quote. Since this is the case, since our ability to worship and praise God is directly proportionate to our knowledge of God, And since it is the greatest duty of any creature on the planet to praise God and to glorify him, then my job really is quite clear. It is to unfold the scriptures, explain the person and works of God who is revealed herein, and then really to just get out of the way and let you live lives of worship and then to sing praises to God corporately to him. So studying and understanding the Bible leads or informs our knowledge of God, and the knowledge of God produces praise. This accords with the well-known statement made by the great theologian from the last century, A.W. Tozer, in his book, Knowledge of the Holy. He said this, he says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Think about that. What is most important about you is your view of God and how you think about God. If we have been created to glorify God, and we have, and if our worship is dependent on our understanding of God, and it is, then, then Tozer is correct. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the greatest and most important thing about us. Our view of God will directly affect our praise of God. Therefore, there's no more relevant, no more pressing task on the earth than to know God and to understand him, to study him so that we can ultimately praise him aright, to praise him as he deserves. I hope you see that and understand that this morning. So although 
every Sunday, whenever we look to God's word and study who he is and what he has done, no matter where we are in scripture, we are really being informed in our praise. But there are some particular places or portions of God's word that really explicitly focus on revealing God to us. They focus on really what we might say is the doctrine of God or just explaining who God is to us. One of my professors once told me, and I believe it to be true, that there are three Old Testament books, more than any other books, uh, that really inform our doctrine of God or help us understand who God is and his character. And those books, he said, are Deuteronomy, Isaiah, and the book of Psalms. These books seem to have a special emphasis on setting forth God and explaining who God is to us. So with all this in mind, I would like us to go to the book of Psalms this morning. I'd like us to turn to Psalm 145, Psalm 145, near the middle of your Bible. And this morning, I would just like to fix our minds upon God, upon his person, his character, and his works, so that the result might be that we praise him, that we worship him. And so this morning, I would just like us to begin by we're reading Psalm 145 in its entirety. I'd again invite you to follow along with me in your own copy of God's Word. And this morning I've decided to read from the Legacy Standard Bible. So follow along with me. Psalm 145. A praise of David. I will exalt you, my God, O King. I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is Yahweh and highly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall laud your works to another and shall declare your mighty deeds on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on the, and on the words of your wondrous deeds I will muse. Men shall speak of the strength of your fearsome acts and I will recount your greatness they shall pour forth the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. Yahweh is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. Yahweh is good to all and his compassions are over all his works. All your works, O Yahweh, shall give thanks to you and your holy ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your might to make known to the sons of men his mighty deeds and the glory of, his, of the majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures from generation to generation. Yahweh sustains all who fall and raises up those who are bowed down. The eyes of all wait on you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Yahweh is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. Yahweh is near to those who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will work out the desire of those who fear him. He will hear their cry for help, and he will save them. Yahweh keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of Yahweh, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. Now, just a couple introductory thoughts as we set out in this psalm. First, 
in the history of God's people, ancient Israel, Psalm 145 would have been as common to them as John 3.16 is to us. And this is because of several reasons. Psalm 145 is the last psalm in the Psalter written by David. It's the last of David's psalms. And in, in the ancient Jewish mind, this psalm was one of great importance. According to the Babylonian Talmud, Psalm 145 was to be recited by a faithful Jew three times a day. And the Talmud commended those who read this psalm and repeated it three times a day as sharing, as sharing a portion in the world to come, meaning they were, they were citizens of the eternal kingdom. So although Psalm 145 may be somewhat unknown to us, it was not for ancient Israel. Additionally, the uniqueness of this psalm is also indicated by the small fact that only, that only in this psalm uh, the opening subtitle contains the word praise. You'll see it there, a praise of David. If you look just right before verse 1, you should see that. By the way, that's inspired text. That's, that was written by David himself, a praise of David. And this is the only psalm that contains this word praise right there. So this means that this psalm was intended for praise. It was meant to praise God and meant to be for the purpose of the congregation praising God. And it's also important because Psalm 145 also functions like an introduction to the five closing psalms in the Psalter. That would be Psalm 146 through 150. All of those psalms, those five final Psalms focus on praising God. Just look how they start with me. Just look at Psalm 146. It says, praise Yah. That's the short name for Yahweh. Praise Yahweh, all my soul. Look at 147, verse 1. Praise Yah. Look at 148. Praise Yah. Praise Yahweh from the heavens. Look at 149. Praise Yah. And same in 150. Praise Yah. Praise God in his sanctuary. These are these five psalms have just sort of a, a chorus of hallelujah to God, praising God. And it seems that 145 is the introduction into those final psalms. As another introductory thought, and depending on the English version that you have in front of you, you might have noticed that this is an acrostic psalm. This means that each verse uh, begins with the successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. You know, the Legacy Standard Bible makes this abundantly clear by just listing the Hebrew alphabet in front of each verse. For example, verse 1 is, is preceded by just the Hebrew letter Aleph, which is what the first letter of the first word of verse 1. And then verse 2 is Baith, verse 3, Gimel, and on it goes throughout the Hebrew alphabet. But there's really something interesting here. If you've studied and you know the Hebrew language, there's 22 letters in the Hebrew language. All of them are consonants. There are no vowels, actually, in the Hebrew language. But all of these, so there's 22 letters, but then when we come to Psalm 145, we find that there's 21 verses. 21 verses. So there's a missing letter here. And if we, carry, if we follow closely, we'll find out it's the letter noon that is missing. It corresponds to our English N. And it should be located between verses 13 and 14. That's where we'd expect to find it, but it's not. And we say, well, why is noon missing in this acrostic psalm? Well, the short answer is, I don't know. And I'll tell you, it bothers me that I don't know. 
I believe David left out noon for a reason. I'm just not sure what that reason was. There, there are some ancient versions of different languages in the Old Testament where there are that do contain an extended or a, really a noon verse, but that it becomes quite obvious that that was added later. And so some, some Bibles contain that. I think the NIV has four lines in verse 13. That's reflecting that added, uh, that added note that some ancient Bibles have. But again, I don't think that's proper. So to say all that, I don't know why there is no noon in this letter. Perhaps it was something to do with the structure of this psalm. I think that's likely the case. Seems like there's a, a, a slight change in subject between verses 13 and 14. It, it perhaps was just that David wanted you to pause between 13 and 14. But again, ultimately, I'm not sure. I don't know why uh, this letter was left out. There are several acrostic psalms in our Bibles, and there are a couple of other ones that do have missing letters in their acrostic. Psalm 25 and 34 also have a missing letter. It's the, the letter Vav there, but, but anyway, so there are some other precedents for having an acrostic with a missing letter. So the overall structure of this psalm remains a bit of a question to me, but that doesn't mean the structure is entirely unknown to us. As I've already mentioned, there are 21 verses, and it's clear that verses 1 and 2 are meant to be David's introduction, and then verse 21 is a conclusion. The first two verses and the final verse, verse 21, function as the bookends on this psalm. The connection between the beginning and the ending is made obvious by this word praise that we already saw in the opening subtitle. The only other place that that's found in this psalm is in verse 21, where it says, my mouth will speak of the praise of Yahweh. That's a unique word for praise found only in verse 1 and verse 21. And, and then secondly, we see a connection between the opening and the ending by the repetition of this phrase, I will bless your name forever and ever in verse 1. That's repeated in verse 2. I will praise your name forever and ever. And then this is also repeated, or it comes up in a similar way in verse 21. It closes with, all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. So again, so we know this. 1 and 2, that's the introduction. Verses 1 and 2. Verse 21 is the conclusion. It draws the conclusion. And between those verses, we find the body of this psalm. And I've divided this psalm up around the clear statements describing God's character. For example, look at verse 3. Great is Yahweh and highly to be praised. And look at verse 8. Yahweh is gracious and compassionate. Verse 14. Yahweh sustains all who fall. Verse 17, Yahweh is righteous in all his ways. These are clear portrayals of God's character. So these verses, I believe, break off four sections in the interior of this psalm, and they'll guide our way through our study. But, but again, I really don't want you to get lost in the structure here. Uh, my encouragement for you this morning is really just to let this psalm wash over you. Let the truth of this psalm affect you and really provoke you to praise. Let the truths here settle into your hearts. Let they lift up your thoughts in praise to God. That's what this psalm is meant to do. It ought to inform and elevate our praise to God. So that's what we should let it do to us. So let Psalm 145 really lift you up in worship this morning. 
So with that, let's again look at those two opening verses. Psalm 145, verses 1 and 2. David writes, I will exalt you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Here is David's commitment to praise. I'm calling it his resolution to praise in verses 1 and 2. He's, he's resolved to praise God. Here he is pledging his commitment, his lifelong commitment to praise God. And he refers to the Lord as his God and King. His King and his God. God is the majestic ruler, the majestic sovereign over all the universe. And David here is resolved to praise him. And not just today, but every day moving forward into all eternity. It's really just a ceaseless existence for David of praising God. When the Bible refers to people as blessing God, it means that we declare or we acknowledge God to be the source of all power in the universe. We bless his name. It's to ascribe to God what is due his name. So here is David sort of planting his flag saying, for now and for eternity I will occupy this ground. My God will be praised for all of my life for into all of eternity. My praise for God will not end. This is not a momentary whim for David. This is, this is the psalmist praising God and declaring his praise and his intention to praise for all eternity. This is his eternal occupation, we might say. In this psalm, it's, it's as if David is really leading the orchestra of praise. He's the conductor, the conductor of the orchestra, and, and the musicians are, are every created thing that David is inviting in to worship and praise God. David is assembling praise to God. So throughout this psalm, there's really an interweaving of David's own voice and his own resolutions to praise God. But there's also, he, he talks of the holy ones, the saints who praise God, mankind in general. He talks about every living thing. And he says, and all flesh, all of them are invited to praise God. And in Psalm 145, the psalmist is really in, intent on instructing every creature to join him in praise to God because he is immeasurably great and abundantly good. And as we turn to verse 3, David begins to objectively describe God to his readers. Look again at verse 3 with me. Great is Yahweh and highly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. This is God's unsearchable character, his unsearchable greatness and found in verses 3 through 7. That's what I'm calling this section. God's unsearchable greatness. This is God's character esteemed and admired by David. He says, great is Yahweh. And the extent of his greatness cannot be known. There are no limits to God's greatness, no boundaries. God is inexhaustibly great. David writes, his greatness is unsearchable. Literally, it's, his greatness is without searching. It's a really a challenge, if you think about it, to define the term great. What, is it, what do we mean by great? Of course, great can mean many things. It can describe being great in size or great in weight or great in number or great in volume. But that, of course, is not what is meant here. God is great in terms of his worth, in terms of his value, in terms of his 
significance and influence and power and beauty and all of his other attributes. He is great in holiness, great in love, great in power, great in grace, great in justice. But the extent of his greatness cannot be measured according to this verse. God is infinitely great. Attempting to gauge God's greatness is like an ant trying to survey and map out the bottom of the Atlantic. It's, it's impossible. He has, he has no tools for such a job. He has no mental capacity for such an act. Well, so are we in trying to quantify God's greatness. Even the best of our praises to God are really like a, a pencil sketching of a sunset. Yes, we can talk of God's greatness, we can study God's greatness, but we'll never be able to define it with any fullness or completeness. Our words and our thoughts lack the color and the vibrancy that is ultimately true of God's greatness. Psalm 139 tells us that God searches us and he knows us. He's intimately acquainted with all of our ways. He knows everything about us. But we do not and cannot know God in this way. We cannot know everything about him. So we bow before him whose mysterious greatness is but dimly understood by us. All of our praise and worship ought to contain just a proper sense of God's transcendence over everything. He's the divine king and he is unsearchably great. His greatness is beyond all human understanding and comprehension. And so the psalmist continues in verse 4, One generation shall laud your works to another and shall declare your mighty deeds. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on the words of your wondrous deeds I will muse. Men shall speak of the strength of your fearsome acts and I will recount your greatness. They shall pour forth the memory of your abundant goodness and, sh- and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. In these verses, the focus resides on the activity and the attributes of the transcendent Lord. In verse 4, it's, it's his works or your works and your mighty deeds. In verse 5, it's your majesty and your wondrous deeds. In verse 6, it's your fearsome acts, your greatness. In verse 7, it's your abundant goodness and your righteousness. And David writes of one generation lauding your works to another, joyfully singing one generation to the next. The pattern in Scripture is the older generation teaching the younger generation through praise, instructing them about the righteousness of God. In Psalm 78, really the psalm is a witness to Israel's failure to pass on the truth, the truth of God from one generation to the next. You see, the truth of Scripture ought to be carried from one generation and passed down into the next generation, from old to young, so as to create lines of generational righteousness, lines of belief, hereditary worship in God. We should laud or we should joyfully sing about God to our children and our our grandchildren. Older saints, hear this. Please don't slip into glory without telling your children and your grandchildren all that God has done for you. Tell them the story of your salvation. Let them see you sing and worship God in your heart. Let them know that God is your chief treasure in this life. Declare his mighty deeds as you tuck your grandchildren into bed. 
When you, when you have long laid in the grave, let them remember, remember you by your heavenly mindedness and your love for God. Uh, let, the, let the memories of your love for the Lord be like a brand burned it into those young minds, guiding them into their own heartfelt worship of our Lord. That's Psalm 145, verse 4. One generation shall laud your works to another and shall declore, declare your mighty deeds. David injects himself again in verse 5. He says, I will muse, I will meditate on the words of your wondrous deeds. I will think upon all that you've done. Interesting, he notes words, as if David himself is reading the Torah and thinking about God's work in creation and thinking about God rescuing the people out of bondage in Israel and thinking all of what God has done. So we ought to meditate on the words that contain the wondrous works of God. In verse 6, he states, I will recount your greatness, and men will speak of the Lord's fearsome acts, the awesome deeds of the Lord. Verse 7 describes how men will remember what God has done. It says they shall, they shall pour forth. Literally, it pictures a spring bubbling up with the memory of God's abundant goodness. Just, just the praises of God bubbling out of a person. They will shout joyfully of God's righteousness. Then in verse 8, David begins a new section by setting forth more about God's character. We've now seen God's unsearchable greatness, and now we see God's kingly compassion in verses 8 through 13. God's kingly compassion. Look at verse 8 with me. Yahweh is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. Yahweh is good to all, and his compassions are over all of his works. All your works, O Yahweh, shall give thanks to you, and all your holy ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your might to make known to the sons of men his mighty deeds and the glory of the majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures from generation to generation. This section here begins with just six unobscured descriptions of God. It sets out Yahweh is gracious. He is merciful. He is compassionate. It says he is slow to get angry. That means he's, he's patient with us in our weakness. He is great in loving kindness or steadfast, committed love. And it says also he's, he's compassionate over all of his works. Everything that God has created experiences and feels God's compassion. And whatever God does, it just drips with his compassion. It's over all of his works. Therefore, the works of God give thanks to God in verse 10. And his holy ones, the saints on the earth, they bless him. And then in verse 11, the, the subject of their speech is God's kingdom. That's what they're thinking and talking about. And of God's power, the saints make known to the sons of men on the earth God's mighty deeds. It's like the, this is their evangelistic impulse to, to praise God to, who, to anyone who will listen. They, they talk of God. They can't help but speak of the glory of the majesty of God's kingdom. This is God's kingdom. It says here it, ha it has no end. It, it endures forever. It's an everlasting kingdom. This is referring to God's kingdom in the broadest sense. God's rule and reign over everything. It's his dominion. 
God's people celebrate God's rule and reign. They celebrate his kingdom. All human power and human dominion pale into insignificance in the light of God's eternal kingdom. God is in utter control of all that transpires in life. Everything that happens, he's sovereignly guiding, he's over, he's ordaining, and God reigns as the majestic sovereign over all things. See, in ancient cultures, worship, ancient, ancient cultures worshipped deities who controlled little localized areas and had little localized areas of authority and domains. But Yahweh, by, con- by contrast, rules as king forever, forever over all peoples on the face of the earth. He is the one true king. Every square inch of the universe is under his dominion. And therefore, he's worthy of the allegiance and the praise of every human on the planet and every human in every generation that ever will be. He's the ultimate authority over all of life. And human kings who reject God's rule and reign will be held accountable. Every man owes allegiance to the one true God. The ultimate question for mankind is, of course, will you bow before this authority, this one sovereign king? Will you let him rule and reign in your life as he deserves? Or will you choose to be the Lord over your own life? But God, on his part, is a compassionate king over his kingdom. He's compassionate, again, over all of his works, even though some spurn his rule and his reign. They reject his law. So man, in his limited time on the earth, has a measure of independence. It's really a short leash of momentary ability to rebel. There's just a short leash here. For now, despite their rebellion, they are experiencing the common grace of God's compassion. But it will not always be that way for those who work iniquity. They will be held accountable. God is slow to anger, but his anger will certainly come. So we've seen God's unsearchable greatness and God's kingly compassion. And in the next section, we find God's provision for all of life. Look at verses 14 through 16. Look at them with me. Yahweh sustains all who fall and praises and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all wait upon you and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Here we see that Yahweh is the great sustainer of life. Verse 15 describes the eyes of all. All, every created thing, the eyes of every created thing fixed upon God, waiting upon him for provision, waiting for daily sustenance from God who will provide for them in its proper time or when God determines. And just imagine the power that is described here. For God to be providing and supplying the needs for all, every created thing, God in control of it all, seeing that the sparrow gets its little seed to eat, seeing that every created thing is is sustained, God is over all of them. And in verse 16 it says, God is open-handed to all of them. His hand is open, satisfying the cravings of every living thing. During the 40-year wanderings in the wilderness, Israel experienced this provision. Israel was forced to wait upon the Lord's daily provision of manna. Jesus also taught us to pray in a similar way, 
Give us this day our daily, pre- our daily bread, to, to wait upon him in Matthew 6.1. But ultimately, I think we must confess that this is a concept that many of us are unfamiliar with because of the prosperity of our nation. But waiting for such in-due-time provision from the Lord has been the experience of countless, f- countless faithful Christians throughout history, countless faithful saints since the beginning. So toward all of God's creation, every living thing, God is the sustainer of life. This is, we might call his common grace toward all creatures. In verses 17 through 20, we we come to the final section of this psalm. I'm calling it God's unfailing faithfulness in verses 17 through 20. Now look at verse 17 with me. Yahweh is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. Just pause for a moment here and ask yourself, do I believe this verse? Do I believe this? God is righteous in all of his ways and holy in all of his works. The word holy in the second half of this verse is really a difficult one to translate. It describes God's holy committed love. It's his compassionate mercy. It's Many English versions use the word, the word kind here. God is kind over all of his works. The root word is a well-known Hebrew term, hesed. It's notoriously difficult to translate into English. In acknowledging that it's so difficult, as I acknowledge that, I say the term holy doesn't seem to capture this term appropriately. It describes God's compassion, his grace, his kindness towards us. And so again, Yahweh is righteous in all of his ways and kind in all of his works. And again, again, I just have to ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe that God's kindness pervades all that he does? Of course, we have no trouble believing this when our lives are comfortable and when things are going our way and we're free from pain or heartache. But in seasons of adversity, how quick we are to question God's goodness we say, God, are, are you really kind here in what you've just done? I now have cancer again. Are you really kind in that? Of course, we know that God is sovereign over all things. He's bringing all things about according to his sovereign plan. So, so we wrestle. We say, God, why did you do this? Why did you bring this trial into my life? And are, are you really kind here? Well, this verse says, yes, he is. What about the difficulty of watching a loved one reject Christ? Someone you've invested years in. And they spurn what, they, what you've taught them. They, they don't love the Christ that you love. And we know God is sovereign in salvation. So do you believe God is kind in that moment when they reject your investment to them? As people, again, who study the scriptures and believe, we know that God is sovereign over salvation. And we might be tempted to believe that God is not kind. But this verse tells us that he is. He is kind in all that he does. He's righteous in all of his ways. This is an absolute truth that we can rest upon. And really, this verse strikes me as a great comfort in trials, or at least it can be, it should be. We may not be able to understand why God brings trials into our life. We may not understand it, but we can say, Yahweh is righteous in all of his ways. He's kind in all of his works. I may not understand it. It doesn't seem like it to me but right now, but I know it's true. God is kind in all of his ways. And David continues on this theme in the following verses. Look at 18. 
Yahweh is near to all who call upon him and to all who call upon him in truth. He will work out the desires of those who fear him. He will hear their cry for help and he will save them. Yahweh keeps all who love him. So if verses 15 and 16 described God's common grace, these verses here describe God's special grace to those who love him, to those who call upon him, to call upon him in truth, who fear him, who love him, who follow him. It's to these ones that Yahweh saves here. He will bring to fruition their desires for their life. And ultimately, again, he, he will save them. This is the truth. The truth of verse 14, I believe, echoes this aspect of God's character. Again, Yahweh sustains all who fall and raises up those who are bowed down. And so we just say, if you are in a season where you're feeling bowed down in life, laid low, maybe staggering from some kind of a setback, riddled perhaps with anxiety, here's a promise from God's word. He, he will sustain you. In his time, he will raise you up. He is near to all those who call upon his name, who call upon him in truth. He will hear your cry for help and he will save. Yahweh keeps all those who love him, it says. This is referring to an eternal keeping, a keeping for forever. We know this life is short and God has ordained the extent of our years, the extent of our days. Either Christ will return for us or we'll go the way of our fathers and soon enough we'll pass from this earth. And although we may pass from this life and although our life may be bitter up until the very end with trials and suffering, we know that God will keep us forever. He is faithful to keep those who love him. I'm reminded of Jesus' words in John 10. He says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. I believe this is the type of keeping that David has in mind here for those who love him. It's, it's being gripped by God the Father and God the Son. He keeps them eternally. Look again at verse 20. Yahweh keeps all those who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. It's an interesting note here at the end of verse 20. In the midst of all this praise and worship and the great blessings upon those who love God and call upon him, here we just find this one line of warning. It's like just hidden here at the end of the psalm. For the only time in this psalm, it's as if David looks over and he eyes the wicked. And he eyes what's coming for them. And he says, future judgment is coming for the wicked. They, they will be destroyed. So God, and acting upon all of his attributes in justice, in faithfulness, in compassion, in kindness, and in love, and ultimately in wrath, God will destroy the wicked forever. That's the end of the wicked. The eternal consequence of rebelling against God, the almighty creator of all things. So this is the culmination of those who's, uh, of the life of rejecting God. This is what they will inherit in the end. Those who reject God's ultimate provision for them, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, the sacrificial lamb of God, they will inherit eternal wrath. 
So whether in David's day or in our day today, those who refuse to cry out to God in humble faith and repentance, who choose to worship themselves over God, their fate is certain. Yahweh will destroy them and will destroy them for all eternity. As he rounds out the body of his message here, David now comes full circle. He began with his, his resolution to praise God, and now he concludes with a final exhortation in verse 21. Look at verse 21 with me. He says, My mouth will speak the praise of Yahweh, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. Here's the overarching theme of all eternity. Imagine we could stretch eternity on a timeline, on an axis, with human history just being a tick on that axis. All of eternity stretched out. If we were to say, what's the common note of all of eternity, the common theme, what will it be? We would be right to say it, it will be one of praise to God. The chief activity that will occupy us for all eternity is praise to Yahweh. All flesh will bless his name forever and ever. According to Job 38, verse 7, after God spoke the stars into existence, they bursted forth in praise to God, praise to Yahweh. And it says that the angels even joined in on the chorus. With that in mind, for, and with God in mind, for all that he is and for all that he has done for us, may we be found joining that eternal chorus, that eternal line of praise which the stars in heaven began, we should declare like David, my mouth will speak the praise of Yahweh and all flesh will bless his name forever and ever. May that be true of us. Let's pray toward that end. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great ancient Hebrew poem, this great ancient song. Lord, it is our joy to bless you. It's, it's our joy to worship you. Praise is pleasant to us. It's, it's a joyful thought to think upon you. Lord, we of all people are so blessed. We, we, th we thank you for the special grace that you have poured upon us. We thank you for revealing the Son to us, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for opening our eyes to our own sinfulness and our rebellion against you. And thank you for, us, for causing us to be grieved in our hearts for our rebellion against you. And Lord, we thank you for providing a Savior for us, that you do save us. You are the king of our own lives and over all of the planet, over all, every galaxy. You reign supreme. You're in absolute control. And so we worship you, we praise you, and we thank you for revealing yourself to us. And we thank you that we can praise you in this way. We thank you that you can inform our praises so that we can worship you rightly. So may we sing songs of praise that lift high your name and elevate you for what you have done, but may we also live a life offered up as a living sacrifice to you. Everything surrendered to your will. May make us holy in every way so that we could just make you glad with our lives, that we could please you in every way. Lord, you are good and gracious and compassionate over everything that you do. You are righteous in all of your ways and kind in all of your deeds, and we praise you for it. It's our joy to worship you, and we praise your name together. Amen.